Welcome to the Talking with Tata podcast. I'm your host, Andy Schneider. Each week, we invite different specialists to give advice and information about raising children in today's environment. I am very excited for you all to listen to today's podcast with Gabby Levy-Nortman. Gabby is an occupational therapist. And Gabby recently moved to Miami. She currently is working at a school in Miami Beach. She is a friend and a colleague. One thing that you're going to really learn during today's podcast is what is an OT and how does an OT help people? We discuss what types of populations Gabby works with and really the collaborative approach that she has and most specialists have with each other. Speech, PT, OT. We all benefit from working together as a team. Everything I do feels rewarding, truly. I'm not just saying that. But I think it's just the idea that I can help a child reach their full potential. You know, I can come up with adaptations to make their lives easier. And also like seeing parents' faces light up when a child reaches their goal, Mm -hmm. things like that. We discuss really the stressful and emotional impact that working with clients can have on you and really the strategies for remaining calm and focused when working with both kids and parents. She discusses a lot about just technology and how the equipment has changed over the years. She is specifically a low-tech OT and really focuses on using creativity with the child and just the most, I guess, misconceptions that you would really hear in occupational therapy and what attitudes or actions she wishes she can change. So I'm looking forward to hearing everybody's opinion on today's episode. I'm excited to welcome Gabby Levy-Nortman to today's podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Gabby. Thanks for having me. Of course. And Gabby is a friend and a colleague. She is an occupational therapist, which you guys will learn more about. And you just recently moved to Miami, so we'll talk about all that fun stuff. Why don't you start us off just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Hi, everyone. I'm Gabby. I'm an occupational therapist, a school-based occupational therapist. So I work in schools. I recently moved to Miami in August. I'm loving it. Welcome. Thank you. It's been great. I love it here. Um, As far as my background, so I've been an OT for five years now. I love what I do. I'm so passionate about it. I feel grateful every day that I get to do this as my job. Okay. So tell us a little bit. I know what an occupational therapist is. I work with them every day, but when it comes to just our listeners and a lot of moms we work with, a lot of people think when we refer to occupational therapists, they think it's using a pencil. And they're like, well, my 18-month-old doesn't use a pencil. And I say, okay, well, there's more than that. Um, Or they think it's like, you know, working with letters or whatever it is. Can you explain to us what is an occupational therapist? What do you do? Sure. So there, it's that, but so much more. And it's I love explaining to people because I could go on and on for hours. Great. Hit but us with it. <laughs> there's a lot that goes into being an occupational therapist. There's many different populations you can work with. But basically, OT is a holistic healthcare profession that helps people of all ages and abilities to perform activities that are meaningful and important to them. So the ultimate goal as an occupational therapist is to enable people, kids to live um, life to the fullest and participate in activities that are important to them, despite any physical, mental, social, emotional challenges they may face. Mm -hmm. What Mm -hmm. ages do you typically start working with? So me personally, right now I'm school-based. The youngest child that I see is probably five years old. Okay. But there's only intervention services, which start as soon as the baby's basically born. Some kids, um, you know, in the NICU need occupational therapists, like after 
chapter once they get home. So you can start as they say zero to 110, basically. However, that is true, though. Yeah. Geriatric. Yeah. yeah. Occupational therapists work throughout the entire lifespan, which is so cool. Wow. And there's so much involved. A pretty crazy profession because there is so much to learn and know. Mm-hmm. And depending on the population that you're in, it's like completely different. So pediatrics, you can work in a school, you can work in a hospital setting, you can work at home, which I do a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's geriatric and you can work in a nursing home yeah. um, and help geriatric patients be as independent as possible and as comfortable as possible near the end of their life. Yeah. I remember when I worked at Southampton Hospital in Long Island, I would see a lot of stroke patients and that's when an occupational therapist would come in and work with their hands and even just trying to get them to put on their pants or zip up their t-shirt, um, yeah. which to be honest, we learned a little bit about this in grad school, but not enough about really the scope of what your field does. Um, yeah. It's pretty incredible. It is incredible. And what you're describing there are called activities of daily living. And that's a huge part of being an occupational therapist. So it's things like feeding, dressing, toileting, grooming. If a patient, you know, is 40 years old, has a stroke and was used to shaving his face every day for work. Suddenly he has weakness in one side of his body and he can't shave his face. And that's mm-hmm. obviously devastating. You're independent and then suddenly you're not. So occupational therapists help, you know, rehabilitate and make you stronger so that you can become independent in that occupation, essentially. Mm -hmm. If, you know, you can't become independent or it's not looking likely, you can find adaptations. So a lot of the things we do is finding adaptations to allow for patients to feel more successful and independent. So you can build up that razor so you can make like a big handle on it so that's easier to grasp. Interesting. So, so you're making that. That's your job. Yeah. So, wow. I mean, there are things you order, right? Like, yeah. especially in a hospital or rehab facility, you can order a built-up handle. You can order a weighted razor. So these are things that all exist. Wow. But I would know to, you know, prescribe mm-hmm. to the patient. And now it's much easier. If he's shaking or if he's weak, he can hold a weighted razor that fits more comfortably in his hand and it gives him some weight. It's thicker and it allows for him to independently shave his face. So it's like finding things like that. Right. And do you do that with the kids as well in school right now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, kids in school, you know, you can, I like using thicker pencils. I like using pencils that um, are shaped to promote using mature grasp, Mm -hmm. so like that, you know, dynamic tripod grasp. Mm -hmm. So there's lots you can give to kids, a lot of different adaptations to support them to be more successful in the classroom. Right. Even if it's like telling teachers about movement breaks or a cushion they could sit on or a rubber band you can put around the bottom of their chair so their feet can bounce on it. Like, right. Those are like kind of like sensory adaptations you could provide so kids can remain regulated and focused and attentive in class. So that is part of your field. Can you give us a few examples other than just, just using a pencil of clients that you would work with? A lot of people feel like handwriting is a big goal, right? Mm-hmm. So they see that their child maybe is not as their handwriting is not as legible as their peers or they're not writing their letters yet and some of their peers are. So I, as an occupational therapist, have to kind of be a little detective and find out like the foundational reasons and the underlying causes for why that may be happening. Mm-hmm. So it's not I'm not going to just take the kid and say, sit down with them, give them a pencil and say, OK, make an A. Right. Like I'm going to look at different things. So I'll look at your core strength. Is your core weak? If your core is weak, how do we expect a kid 
to sit at a table and have legible handwriting if they're leaning to the side, if they're using all their energy and trying to sit upright. I feel like I need to fix my posture right now. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Like it's just a big expectation for a child who just has like some weak belly muscles. Mm -hmm. So I can work on core strength through a number of ways. You know, we can do obstacle courses. I can have them sit on a therapy ball and reach through different planes. Um, So it like increases their core. And everything I do is fun. I'm such a play-based therapist. I'm really passionate about it. Mm -hmm. Really passionate about, you know, finding kids' interests, using those interests to play and get on their level. And then I can challenge them and reach their goals and address their goals through that kind of play. Absolutely. So do you have to work in more of a collaborative approach with just other professionals? Yes. So I'm a collaborative person in general, and I think it's really, really important to be collaborative, especially when you're discussing a child or any patient, really. Being an OT, I look at the whole picture and the whole child, and Mm -hmm. you really want to know what's going on in all areas. So if a child is seeking other therapeutic services, it's really important to be in touch, be on the same page so we can like have carryover in our sessions, you know, work on things together, have conversations. Yeah. The school that I worked at in New York was actually a very interdisciplinary school. There was social workers, speech therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, counselors, music therapists. Every week we pick a new kid and that whole team, so like one or two members Mm -hmm. from each like section that I just described, would meet and discuss a kid in his case, his or her case. And it was really collaborative and it was such a good opportunity for me to learn what other, you know, professions work on and mm-hmm. then educate them, right? So like I work with speech language pathologists all the time and I think it's amazing because I can offer suggestions of how you can add movement or sensory experiences to your sessions, which is only beneficial for the child. Yeah. And you can do the same like we're working on certain sounds and then I can, you know, yeah, absolutely. Be sure to like throw it in there if I can. I appreciate that. And I I mean, we see you guys do it, um, just occupational therapists. And I know that PT, speech, OT, um, there's so much, whether it's geriatric or, you know, a two-year-old, that we really all can benefit from each other. To be honest, I wish we kind of learned a little bit more about each other's fields in grad school prior to me being kind of thrown into it. Through all my experience, I've learned to really rely on all the other specialists. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think I was fortunate enough to work in a school where it was really collaborative and there yeah. was so many dis- different disciplines. So I had that experience for the first four years of my career. I really learned so much, had so much exposure. Yeah, We would oftentimes do co-treatments with speech pathologists mm-hmm. or with physical therapists. Yeah, So a kid would see an OT and PT at the same time or an OT and SLP at the same time and we would be in the same room with the mm-hmm. kid and we would have a session and I would work on OT girls and he or she would work on PT or speech goals. Yeah. And it was like always amazing. We yeah. always had the best time. Kids were like, it's fun. Such a fruitful experience. Yeah. It was great. Absolutely. So speaking of kids, I'm fully aware that just at times children can be very stressful. It could be a very emotional experience. <laughs> I can speak from my own experience, but I'm sure you have your own stories. So what strategies do you really have for just remaining calm and focus um, when working with children, but not just the children, also the parents? So I would say I'm a strength-based therapist, and I really like to focus on that. So when I'm talking to parents, you know, I really start from a strength-based perspective. I tell them, like, you know, this is what your child is doing. This is what I foresee them doing. This is what we're working on. And I think that being a calming presence and calming force for parents is so important to me because I know that, you know, they're raising children and if they hear something is not going the way that they 
expected or they're not reaching developmental milestones like that's obviously very upsetting and Mm -hmm. I'm an empathetic person and I feel for parents and I want to be that like calming force so I think just like keeping that at the forefront of my mind Mm -hmm. and just being really open with communication and explaining to parents everything I'm doing and why yeah and providing them you know resources to do at home for carryover it makes parents feel really good um, that they have like something that they can be doing and it puts like some control in there on their side of things. Absolutely. So you're getting them involved in it. Yeah. And I like what you said about the whole strength base, you know, use, don't just focus on the negative, focus on the positive. Like really. There's so much amazing about kids and there are certain things that we have to work on, but it can be fun. It can be playful. Most of the times it's nothing, thankfully, like really detrimental and scary. I just think keeping it positive and strength based is so important for the parent, the child's confidence. Like we want children to be successful in everything that they do. We want them to feel that feeling, not feel like they're less than, you know, Mm -hmm. so I think it's important. And obviously it can be emotional at times, but we're here doing good work. And I think it's just important to keep that in mind. Absolutely. And, you know, I actually had an experience recently where I referred a patient for occupational therapy and the parents just immediately assumed spectrum. You know, they immediately assumed, why are you saying there's a sensory processing? And I wasn't actually saying that, but I said, you know, I think that these are things we can just strengthen. And I think that's probably something that parents get concerned about often if you refer, whether it's speech, OT, PT, you know, immediately think of like the worst case scenario when it comes to that. For sure. And I feel for parents that that's their first reaction, scary, but there's so much that we work on and it doesn't mean, you know, autism. Yeah. Sensory processing disorder is completely separate. Yeah. So it's just important to like remember that. And the the thing to keep in mind is that, you know, you want to help your child. You want them to be successful and independent and giving them the tools to do that if you can, it's really important. Absolutely. Especially as early as possible. Absolutely. When it comes to just techniques uh, that parents can really work on to strengthen their child, fine, gross motor skills. I know that they are two very different things, but what would you say just from a professional's point of view? Allowing your child to explore their environment from a very young age is so important. Mm -hmm. Allowing them to be on the floor looking around. Crawling is so important because you they can, you know, they're moving their body, they're working their visual system, they're strengthening the muscles in their hands and their shoulder girdle. Yeah. So just allowing your child to really explore their environment and obviously supervise. Even like as your kids start to get older, I think it's important to let them have their independence a little bit and do things. I know it's so easy for a mom to just like open up a yogurt container for their child. Yeah. But f- from an OT perspective and a fine motor perspective, like maybe let your child open the yogurt themselves. That's working on bilateral coordination, which is the use of two hands together. So the child has to hold the cup of yogurt and use the other hand to peel back the cover. Mm-hmm. Um, you're working on strengthening the muscles in your hands and your fingers, and you're working on that those bilateral skills. So it's so important. And you want kids to be successful. So if they're getting frustrated, maybe you start it, you open it halfway and let them finish it. But kind of opportunities like that, like letting kids, kids who are older, I tell parents, let them open the door for you. It's like heavy work. It's strengthening all their muscles because it's so important. Like we spoke a little earlier, you asked me for some examples. Another one would be that your shoulder girdle, like the muscles in your shoulder, sometimes those are weaker Uh and you really want to strengthen them because it's, you can't expect a child to use their smaller muscles in their fingers and hands if like the bigger muscles aren't working properly or are weak. Yeah. So you want to strengthen those to yeah. have like a better base of support. 
And that way you can be more mobile with your fingers and hands. Yeah. I think a lot of parents don't want their kid to crawl on the floor. It might be dirty or don't want them, you know, in our classes, we do these sensory bins with sometimes dirt and rice and water and they don't want them to get messy. But I think giving your child this independence, it's so important. Yeah. Let your child get messy. You heard it here. We're going to make that the tip of the the week. Let your child be independent and get messy. I think that's great advice. There's so much. You're working on so many parts of the sensory system by engaging in messy play. Like you're, you know, you're developing the tactile system, which is your sense of touch. You are most likely on all fours and you are strengthening your shoulder, your hands, your wrists, your fingers. You know, you're moving, you're moving both sides of the body or it's like coordination, bilateral coordination. Visually, it's so important to explore your worlds on all fours, Mm -hmm. your visual system, your eyes working together, teaming together. Yeah. That's like early stages of reading three, four years down the line, you know? Absolutely. You're really starting children off with all the skills that they need to function. And you you mentioned earlier activities of- Daily living. Yep, daily yeah. living. And that's probably the most important thing that hopefully parents can get from this podcast is like, let your child do it. It'll help them along the way. Yeah, let them do it. <laughs> yeah, let them do it. So OT technology and equipment has changed. Would you say that has it changed since the beginning of your career? Have there been any new advances recently? Or is this something that just, it's constantly changing? I think it's constantly changing. I think our world is constantly changing, you know, with the development of technology and yeah. AI now and all that stuff. Yeah. For me, like I pride myself on kind of being a low tech therapist. Yeah, especially, I appreciate. Yeah, especially being a play-based therapist. Like if I need to work with a child in a hallway, like I can find something, figure something out and we will have a successful, beautiful, well-rounded therapeutic session. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's not as much like as important to me as if maybe I was in like a rehab facility where there's all this like new tech coming out that yeah. can help with, you know, gross motor function and the like the use of your hands. I remember when I was in one of my clinical field works, this program came out for stroke patients. It was kind of like a video game. They wear this glove and you had to like, kind of like remember Dance Dance Revolution? Yeah. So you had to like do it with your fingers and match colors. And it was just like a really fun, innovative, like motivating game mm-hmm. for adults to play to help strengthen their hands and their arms again. And it was cool because while they're doing that, you know, you're monitoring it on a computer and you can see their progress. And so things like that are amazing. And obviously, like from a pediatric perspective, ever evolving like cochlear implants for kids who, you know, have some hearing loss and things like that. I mean, it's pretty amazing. I'm excited to see what more tech comes out. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's cool. Yeah, no, I agree with what you have to say. I mean, I know from my perspective of just speech therapy, sometimes I just tell parents, if you want to work on something, take out a book, take out a piece of paper and a pencil. You know, technology is fabulous. And I think especially certain populations that we work with really thrive off of technology, especially if they're nonverbal, they might need it. But one of the most important things you could really do is just how you had said that you were more of like a low tech type of therapist to begin with. For sure. My favorite session, like I could put a kid on a therapy ball I'm supporting them at the pelvis probably. And then, you know, you put something on each side of them on their right and left sides, whether, and maybe it's a puzzle and you put puzzle pieces on one side, puzzle pieces on another. And I'll say, you know, reach for the puzzle piece over there and they'll move out of the center of gravity. So they're targeting, you know, working on their core strength. They'll reach down, they'll grab a small piece. So we're focused on fine motor. They're looking on the puzzle board to where they're going to put that piece that's working on your visual motor skills so you're targeting so many different things and all you need 
is a ball and a puzzle. Yeah. So, and parents can do it at home. Yeah, for sure. And Absolutely. I, I really like to educate my parents and, and the teachers that I work with so that they can carry these skills over. Absolutely. So a lot of parents have written in with just um, some questions about occupational therapy and just questions specifically for you. So I wanted to throw a few of these at you. Will my child outgrow his or her sensory issues? Tough question. Yes. And I know parents always ask it. Yep. Whether or not a child outgrows their sensory issues can vary greatly depending on the individual and the severity of their sensory issues. Yeah. In some cases, with appropriate support and intervention, a child may be able to learn coping mechanisms and develop the skills to manage their sensory challenges effectively. Mm-hmm. However, in other cases, sensory issues may persist into adulthood, which at that point, it's really just about the individual, you know, understanding their own needs and the things that help their sensory systems. It's kind of like coping mechanisms to reach like a state of regulation. So early on as an occupational therapist, my job is kind of to help a child increase, you know, their body awareness skills, their self-regulation so that they know and can utilize tools that will help them in the future. Right. And just like giving them that understanding, like if something, if loud noises are really hard for you, what can you do? Like, can you ask for noise dampening headphones when you're going into the subway station? Can you put them on? Like things like that. So even if it does persist into adulthood, the ultimate goal is that the individual is aware of their sensory needs and know how to adapt and become independent and successful in their life. It's a great answer. Um, another question we have is, how do I know if my child's actions are related to sensory issues or behavioral issues? Which, to be honest, I want to know the answer yeah. to this too. <laughs> so it's really hard. You might not love my answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but especially if you're not trained in sensory processing, it's yeah. you know really hard to tell the difference. Yeah. But my job is to educate the teachers in in the school that I work with on how to kind of tell the difference. And I think oftentimes we'll see, and teachers probably agree with me, that you'll find a few kids in your classroom that filtering their environment and choosing appropriate responses are really difficult for yeah. them. So they're expected to sit in a busy classroom with 18 other humans in it and keep it together the whole time while sitting at a desk with no movement breaks. When they're acting out, it looks like a behavior, but realistically, they're just trying to Mm self-soothe and self-regulate and cope. So if things are really overwhelming, they might revert back to something that's like predictable, like a predictable response. Yeah. They can get a reaction from their teacher so that like whatever's happening, whatever's overwhelming can like you know, stop, stop. Yeah. I also think executive functioning skills. I think that plays a huge role in these behaviors because a child may just have difficulty like initiating and executing a new task. So they'll revert back to that behavior and it might not be deemed appropriate in the classroom at that moment. It's important as a parent and and educator to explore this behavior and see the underlying causes. And my honest, my recommendation for that would be to speak with a professional like an OT or someone who specializes in behavior with like a sensory knowledge and background because I think it's really worth exploring like we really have to be detectives a lot of the times kids are not just acting out because they want to be bad or acting out there's something else going on there and I think it's so important to take the steps to figure it out so that this child can be successful in class because if you're saying no all the time or you're telling them to stop all the time it also impacts their you know, their self-image and their self-esteem. And we really want to build kids up, not bring them down and make them feel like they're not as good as the next kid. 
Absolutely. And I think teachers, as I, I think they're so important, but along with parents, they or along with specialists, they need to know when to refer to an occupational therapist or a speech therapist, physical therapist. You know, I think as fabulous as teachers are, sometimes I think they might characterize a child as behavioral issue when maybe it's not behavioral, maybe it's more a sensory issue. Right. Which is a lot of the work I'm doing now at the school that I work at in Miami Beach. It's a lot of collaboration and education of teachers. So I go into the classroom. So right now I'm doing a lot of just groups. That's mm-hmm. pretty much what my job is. I'm doing um, like group occupational therapy sessions. And some of the groups I go into the classrooms and I'm teaching everyone. It doesn't matter if they need an OT or not. I'm like you know, acting as a liaison in the classroom. We run a group, whether it's like a handwriting or a movement group and the teachers sit in and I, you know, we'll go up to the teacher after and I'll say, this is what I did and why, and this is what I observed. And this is what I think we could do next. And I've created spaces in the hallways where kids can go take a movement break. So I tell the teachers, like, if you're noticing that they're you know, being fussy in their seats or they're getting up or they're, you know, acting out or interrupting the class, say like, oh, I think your body needs a movement break. Why don't you go to the OT hallway and pick a movement and come right back to class? And teachers are doing it. And it's been really great. And I've given, you know, certain things in the classrooms, like movement corners in the classroom that kids have access to and can just get up on their own, mm-hmm. not disrupt anyone, just go walk over to the corner, do this whole little brain gym I set up, and then come back to their desk and re-engage with like whatever academics they're doing. And I've gotten really positive feedback from teachers. They're loving it. And wow. it's really working on kids' body awareness, their ability to recognize their own internal signals, knowing that, oh, I think I need a break. I think I should get up and go and come back. Like, I think it's I working need that. <laughs> Can we do like an adult, you know, brain gym type of area? Love that. Yeah. Um, I think that's great. Uh, One more question for you from the parents. What should parents of kids with sensory processing issues really look for in an OT? So it's kind of throwing it back to you. You know, what questions should they ask? What are their personality traits that they should look for? I think it's such a personal thing. I Mm -hmm. think it's important to find someone you're comfortable working with. Yeah. Someone who will have an open communication, open dialogue with you. My first question would be like, will I hear from you? Can you let me know what we do, what you're working on in sessions, any progress you know? For me, that's just like how I roll. Yeah. Parents know every time I have a session, a private session, because I also see kids privately, forgetting just like the school-based stuff. Um, during After my private sessions, I'll text or email a parent and I'll say, like, I'll give the session note basically mm-hmm. telling them what we did. And anything that, like, I think they should continue to work on at home or any progress that I'm seeing. And I just think it makes parents feel really good and part of their kids' program, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think just finding someone that you feel comfortable speaking with, like you want to be able to be yourself, express your concerns as a parent and not feel, like, uncomfortable doing so. So I just think finding someone that you mesh with and who makes you feel comfortable, who's going to speak to you and have an open dialogue and stuff. Absolutely. And I think, you know, same thing goes for speech. You want to be able to get feedback, but also maybe give feedback at times. Um, Someone that you feel comfortable speaking with. Totally. At any point you get any sort of diagnosis, like sensory processing disorder, or if it's just like generalized weakness, things like that, like you can, or if it's like auditory sensitivity, you can try to find an occupational therapist maybe who specializes in certain programs. Therapeutic listening is a program you can use for you know, auditory defensiveness and things like that. So asking like what kind of background they have Mm -hmm. is helpful. 
I love that. A few more questions for you here. What's really been the most rewarding thing about working in in uh, occupational therapy? And do you have any recent success stories that you're willing to share with us? Everything I do feels rewarding, truly. I'm not just saying that. But I think it's just the idea that I can help a child reach their full potential. You know, I can come up with adaptations to make their lives easier. And also like seeing parents' faces light up when a child reaches their goal, Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, I've had some pretty good success stories, um, thankfully. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) One that like stands out to me is a boy I worked with for um, four years at my old school in New York. He was diagnosed with autism and cerebral palsy. So it was a very involved case. He is the light of my life. I love him him so much. I miss him terribly. But when I first started working with him, he wasn't even really crawling, I guess maybe four years old at this point. And by the time I left last year, we had him in like an adapted stander. He was standing, not independently, but with the help talk about like tech and equipment. He was standing. First of all, he was crawling, exploring his environment, like very rapid pace. His hand strength was increasing. His bilateral sides of his body were increasing. And we just like had him standing upright, which was really emotional for me because at that point he had never seen the world from that perspective he's always been on all fours on the floor so he was able to like see through windows and classrooms and it was just like really special you could just tell he was like really happy he was non-speaking um but he you can just see his affect and his His emotions yeah Yeah. it's really really special i miss him That's very special. I can relate to just the patients who really touch you. You know, it's it, there's an emotional factor to everything. And just one final question for you before we let you go here. What's a misconception that you've heard about occupational therapy? There's probably a couple. The first being a lot of people don't really know what occupational therapy is. Yes. I've had so many people ask me, so what do you do? You like coach people on what kind of like occupation and career oh. you want to be? <laughs> And I'm like, no, but I, it's happened way more than like. That's amazing. One, yeah, more than once for sure. I just like to advocate for my profession because it's such an amazing profession. Yeah. You know, that's like a misconception. People really like don't understand what yeah. it is. So I'm trying to be part of the movement where occupational therapy is more like popular and yeah. world known, you know? I think that like what you said earlier, that it's just handwriting because it's not. It's yeah. so much more than that. Like for those who actually know what OT is, but why they know that, like if they have a kid in school or a grandparent or a spouse or a parent in a hospital or rehab that is so much more than handwriting like we work on so much there's such a big scope of what we do as ot's we really are detectives with like a huge toolkit and a wide array of knowledge so it's really important that everyone knows that i think that is great and then just uh, one final thing where can our listeners find you i know that you have a very full caseload but in <laughs> case somebody drops out or they graduate from your program um where can people reach out to find you? Um, So I guess you can email me. Email is glevy, G-L-E-V-Y 20 at gmail.com. I am in the process. I promise myself by the end of the year, I will have like a website and I'll make business cards. Luckily for me, word of mouth um, has gotten me like a full Wow. Caseload. So, yeah. Because you are great. So, thank you so much for coming on. (laughs) I learned a lot. I think our listeners will really learn a lot. Um, And I will definitely be sending you a few more clients. Yay. Thank you. (laughs) So good to be here. Thank you so much for listening to the Talking with Tata podcast. Please subscribe and follow along wherever you listen to your podcast Apple, Spotify, wherever that may be. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talking with Tata and our website, talkingwithtata.com.